the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. We are entering a new series today called Your Questions About the Bible. And this series is pretty much driven by all the questions that so many of you have put in. Uh, hundreds of questions came in and we, we sort of collaborated and uh, put them in places and categories so that hopefully we're going to answer most all of them in the next coming weeks. One of the questions that kept coming up repeatedly was on the issue of creation and evolution. Kind of understand, how do we understand Genesis 1 and 2 in light of current science? And that came up over and over and over again. Um, cause there's a tension there that's natural. And so in order to help answer this question, we, I have, uh, drafted in, uh, our chairman of the board of elders, Gary Friesen, and the teacher of Genesis at Multnomah University, Dr. Gary Friesen. Give him a round of applause as he comes. <laughs> Gary, you've taught uh, the Pentateuch for like uh, two years now? It, uh, let me think. I think it's 36 years. 36. But I started at age 10, so I'm not that old. Right. Okay. <laughs> so 36 years, you, these questions have come up a lot for you. And maybe we could just start it with kind of framing the problem. There's a feeling as if um, we, have, we have current science and culture, and then we have scripture. Uh, for, for some people, that's we have what I was taught as a kid from scripture or whatever it is. And there's a sense that Christians are fearful of science or in opposition to science, which leaves most people today that are followers of Jesus in a really difficult situation. I either have to check my brain at the door and just say, well, I don't understand, but the Bible says it, so that's it. Or I have to ignore science, right? Or I just act confused and hope nobody asks me any of those questions. So where do we start? How do we understand? Do we have to check our brains at the door? Do we have to be afraid of science? What, how, how do we, what do we do when... Uh, questions that scripture creates questions that we have from the world around us or tension or problems. And that's going to be the norm and we know it is the norm. And probably looking back at facing any issue, including this particular one on Genesis 1 and 2, I, I think the most important thing to say is if you're a Christ follower, you are under command both to use your mind to understand and to use your heart to believe. Neither of those can be left at the door. Both, both must be held on to. In fact, I think Christ would say, uh, since he is creator, that we don't have any choice but to learn about that creation. And since he is the subject of the scriptures, uh, that is our book 
to read, to understand, and to believe. So I say when we walk in, if you're a Christ follower, don't leave your mind and don't leave your heart at the door. You must come with both if you're going to be faithful to the one that's calling you. And so really, uh, there's a sense that it's mandated that we're, we're supposed to push into those questions. We're supposed to seek answers, not simply disconnect ourselves when we're like, well, it doesn't make any sense, so I'll just ignore Scripture. Or it loses its reliability, or it loses its authority. And I think for us, for a lot of people, that becomes a really um, significant point in their faith journey where they begin to drift a little bit uh, away from Christ, or these questions cause them to distrust Christ, and so they begin to drift. And pretty soon, you change your whole morality. You start to move into sin, and then you quickly change your theology or your interpretation of Scripture because you just make it justify everything. And so, yeah. so many people easily just wash it over and say, well, it's an old book, and people, yeah. you know. And Christ is going to say, as he says to the apostles, be shrewd as serpents. You have to understand your culture and your world. Paul's going to say the same thing. He's going to say a couple times, don't be children in your understanding. Be adults. You have to do that. One place in the Gospel of Mark, foolishness is listed as a sin. So God, in essence, said, I've made the world and I've given you scriptures and your mind and heart need to go after both of them. Okay, so we're, we're supposed to push into these. Now we come to Genesis 1, okay, the problem for today. And in the beginning, God. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 1. If you need a Bible, it's there in your pews. But we walk through the creation story where God speaks creation into existence. And so we get day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, he rests. And it looks like uh, we're supposed to understand these years. Are we supposed to understand these as 24-hour days? First thing is, if you take any piece of literature, including the literature in front of us, to read it for its normal sense meaning. And the days, one through seven... Uh, There's good evidence to take those days as 24-hour periods. Uh, The things that would lean that direction from the text would be, one, the word day in Hebrew, just like it is in English, its main meaning is a 24-hour period. Unless there's some clue in the text that I should take it differently, I would lean in that direction. That phrase, evening and morning, causes many believers to say, that's another clue. It looks like 24-hour days. And something that you might not notice the first time you read, but if you went through all of Scripture, every single time the word day has a number in front of it, 15th day, 24th day, that kind of thing, each time it's a 24-hour period. And here we have them numbered. And one last thing that comes to mind when you step away from Genesis and you're reading Exodus and the giving of the Ten Commandments, there's a parallel made between this and the Sabbath. 
I think we're aware of it, where he says that God worked for six days and rested for one. You're to work for six days and rest for one. And for sure with the Israelites, that's six 24-hour days and a rest. And the parallel was made to this. So those kind of things point to a genuine, open understanding of an, uh, a Christian who's thinking could be, yeah, that would fit. They could be 24-hour days. Okay, so I read it and I take it literally. And doesn't that leave me in a fight with both believers who are scientists, a lot of them, and non-believers who are scientists and good science? Uh, first thing to say, and then the answer is yes, uh, most believers who are science teachers um, say they don't think they're 24-hour days. And most unbelievers who are science happen to look at it. Uh, They'll say the same thing with an expanding universe and evidence of quite a bit of time. And I think the believers got to take those seriously, but we also got to be very, very careful. It almost helps to say when we're talking about science, current science, because the very nature of anything that continues to look for facts, which of course science does, is going to be changing. I remember pushing back at one of my science teachers and saying, in essence, okay, on the quiz, I'm supposed to be learning these laws of science. And then I tried to sound sincere, but I was a little sarcastic. And I said, are you telling me that these laws will never, ever change their fact? I can depend on them forever? And of course, the answer was, "Uh, you're a little naive. No, 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 no. This law is just our best current understanding. We're not close to new information. If new information comes in, we'll adjust this and this will no longer be the law. At least keep that in mind in the discussion that what current science holds, in 10 years they may laugh at you for holding what it holds right now And that's actually a good thing because it means something is moving. More information is coming in. So the answer is yes, but there is a real sense that to bow down to something that's going to move, one has to be really, really careful and use your mind on that side and not just swallow. Okay, so it puts me in tension, but can I read this? in a way that doesn't necessarily put me in a fight with Scripture and maintain the integrity. So I'm not just making it say something, but truthfully I can come to the Scripture as authoritative and reliable and understand it, and I I don't end up in this fight with, with culture. And historically most Christians have done exactly what you ask, is it possible? They've looked at the text and said there may be a lot more time. For instance, if you look down at verse 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Uh, Time could be in there. It would cause no problem with the text. Or between verses 2 and 3. And then when you look at the word day, Uh, The word day here is the same as in English. It has great different 
meanings that are related to each other. But for instance, if tw- the 24th day of the month, we'd say that's a, that's a 24-hour day, and it, that fits well. But look down at verse 5, 1, 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. In our near context, here's another use for the word day, half of the day, the light period he called day. Then if you turn the page, chapter 2, verse 4, some of your translations won't put the word day, but they'll give the sense. And where it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. My translation says when they were created. Literally, it's in the day that they were created. So in the close context, you have the word day referring to everything that happened in Genesis 1, which clearly is longer than a 24-hour day, whatever view that you take. So the very word day and being seriously serious with it gives the possibility, as many believers have seen, that these days could be longer. And then I can't help looking at the text and saying that the form of it may be poetry, that there is a structure that you can lay out that almost is like a poem, meaning if you look at verse 2, it has the phrase, the earth was formless and void. And what it looks like that that introduces day 1, 2, and 3, the formless It takes care of that, and it gives it form each day, separating light and darkness, separating waters above and below. And then the emptiness, day four, five, and six, he fills it so that this emptiness now has animals and people and fish and stars, and it's filled. And then if you step back and look at it, Day one and day four parallel each other. He separates day and night, and then he fills it with lights. He separates water, and then he fills the air and the water on day five. So two and five, and then three and six, exactly the same thing. So the structure here may be poetry that says, by using the form of the word day, God created everything. But a poet's never going to say that. They're going to say it much better than that. They're going to say, he created this and this and this. Don't, we're not done. He created this and this and this. So when you get to the end, you go, oh. And the poet goes, yes. That's what I was hoping for, that little Because ah. it's ultimately about worship at that point. One big thing is this going to be on creation, is going to be worship. In fact, if you look at the rest of Scripture, almost every time it talks about creation, it's in poetry. End of the book of Job, Isaiah 40, even you have uh, at the end of time a song sing that's poetry around the throne. And it may be that God normally presents creation in poetry because the most important thing for us to get 
is to feel the awesomeness of it and end up in worship. And that if we've missed that, we didn't understand anything. And poetry can be the best to help us to do that. Okay, a couple things there. One is, uh, if we talk about this being a longer than 24-hour day uh, in the first six days in Genesis 1, the reality is we don't have a sun and a moon in here until, like, the fourth day. Mm-hmm. It's hard to that. tell time without that, it feels like. So, and like, how do you go 24 hours if I don't... And that may be an indication of the poetry structure. Some have said it was for that reason. Some Old Testament scholars, when they've compared this, let's say the Babylonian creation myth, they say maybe the reason is because other cultures had a penchant for worshiping the sun. And one beautiful way of saying don't do that is to picture light Without the sun, it comes directly from God. He created it. And even when you get to the sun, it's just the greater and the lesser light, but it's a created thing. So some feel that the way it is laid out may actually be a strong argument to say, don't worship the sun, worship the person who made light and made the lights in the universe. So at that point, we're saying that Genesis 1 is really teaching us more about who than how. And I, and I think all the different views realize that is a bottom line. That who, rather than a potential timeline, although that may be included, but the most important thing, and I think for our culture, when you're Christians are going back and forth on what does this day represent. Uh, I say that's an intramural activity between believers, but don't talk that way when you're with someone from the culture who doesn't believe in God as creator. At that point, get to the bottom line. And at that point, the worthy discussion between two people would be, am I the product of matter plus time plus chance, or am I the product of a loving, wise, and powerful God? That is a good discussion. Hmm. Um, But that is our bottom line. All believers and in the creeds, we believe in the creator of heaven and earth, and uh, that's going to be across the board. Because when we're talking about Scripture, Scripture comes is that we believe it's inspired by God. We believe it comes with authority, that it makes a truth claim on us. And that truth claim would be there is a good God who made a good creation, who uh, loves us and wants us to worship him and enjoy this creation. So there's meaning, there's purpose, there's an all-powerful God. That's a truth claim on the who uh, where time plus matter plus chance makes a truth claim as well uh, that you can extrapolate out to say, create your own meaning, create your own purpose. And that's, that's part of what I love to say because I think I don't care what a person believes, they are looking for meaning, significance, love, communion. They're made that way, so it's no surprise. So sometimes it helps to say, 
if, if you don't believe in a creator, you still have faith. You believe something came from nothing, life came from non-life, and purpose and love and significance came from chance. That takes faith too. Okay, so one is perhaps we're talking more about who than how. That's, that's the first thing. The reliability of this book is that we, we can maintain its reliability. We're, we're seeing a, we have a book that's endured for 2,000 years through a whole lot of science uh, during that time and a whole lot of conflict. Uh, we don't have to check our brain at the door. I want to go back to genre because you, you're saying poetry. This could be poetry. Um, Meaning that within Scripture, we have different literary forms. We have different, we have poetry, we have proverbs, we have historical kind of narratives, we have gospel narratives, we have letters that were written to people. Um, and, and the way we would treat those, if they weren't in the Bible, is we'd treat them like the form. We'd read, we wouldn't read a poem the same way we read a newspaper. So... How important is that to interpreting to the Scripture in a, in a literal way, in a meaningful way? Well, once God decided to use words and literature, then that was the game. Then at that point, as natural as we feel reading those different genres in our culture, the same thing fits well in the Scripture. Why wouldn't he use different genres? In, in fact, I, my guess is that all the genres that were available then, uh, since God was using written literature, that, that he uses them all. And that he's, each, we're going to read a little differently. So when we read a proverb and somebody says, I know a case when that didn't happen. <laughs> and we go, bro, it's a proverb. It, it, it covers, it's general, it's going to have exceptions. Its uniqueness of genre is it's, that it's pithy and you can remember it and it's a good rule of thumb. And a proverb in the scripture is the same as a proverb in our culture. You treat it like a pro- To me, that's really important. And most of it will come natural when you do read something and you have those varieties. Uh, so when you're reading a parable, and somebody says, I'll bet you that never happened. And you go, no, no, you're asking the wrong. It maybe didn't happen. Uh, for instance, the parable where uh, the man is hiring people into his vineyard. Gets somebody early in the morning, noon. And then he hires some people one hour before closing time. And then he pays them all the same thing. And somebody goes, nobody's going to do that. And I'm going... Doesn't matter. It's bad economics. And you go, yeah, it wouldn't work real well. But that's part of what it is. One, it's a parable. And two, when you take it in, it's easy to remember and you start thinking, why, why? The kingdom of God is different than this world. And it may be saying whether you came to faith early as a child or on your deathbed, it won't matter what you get from God is more than you deserve. You get the same, eternal life. And there's something about a parable different than history that will communicate that well. I have a theory, 
And that is that when you're trying to understand truth, seeing the same truth in more than one genre is part of what helps you to understand it in its full sense. History hits you. Here's somebody that believed it and somebody that didn't. And you watch what happens. A good story made up sticks in your mind and affects your emotions. Poetry, same thing, does different things to us. And scripture is no different. God is going to use all of those. And even ones I would have suggested that he not use. I'm referring to apocalyptic literature. Doesn't it bother you, all those arms and all those eyes? They bother me, okay? I mean, that's almost like a comic book of their day. And he uses it all. Each will communicate something. But having our antenna out to read literature like literature, real important. So just to make sure we hear that, that when we come to Scripture and we interpret it, we need to pay attention to context in in the form that it's written. So you don't get to go... uh, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, you don't get to say, that's poetry. Right? It's exaggerated. It's exaggerated. That's parable. It may not ever have happened. Right? Because that was written as a letter that was very clear. Uh, and, and so, which is, tends to be what people do. We start to play games with it as opposed to letting the form speak for itself, which is what you're yeah. saying. And you've got to go with an honest heart. It doesn't matter what literature to be open to take it in, the parable of the seeds, same seed, and it comes out different. No different on the seed, it's the word of God. But that last one, Luke calls it a good and honest heart, lets it in and then good things happen. Okay, so 24-hour day, long day, short day, what do you think? Yes, that's lame. I've, I've gone back and forth. There's, there's a sense that the most important thing on this issue is to say, appreciate there are good reasons for believers holding both and to think it through and to be convinced in one's own mind. Romans 14 says where Christians differ, it doesn't matter. Oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it does matter. Understand it the best you can, become fully convinced, and then believe and obey. And I lean towards, oh, we're running out of time. Uh, On a Tuesday, I lean towards 24-hour days and then wrestle with uh, the fossils and the time um, aspect. And I would lean towards a longer day. And not wrestle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you need to listen to the series on uh, Jacob. Uh, oh, yeah. I heard it was awesome. It was. It um, was. And we're both on your elder board, so that tells you what's going to happen there. We get a lot finished. Uh, <laughs> we just sit around going, oh, what do you think? I don't know. But in terms of being convinced, part of it is to say, uh, where Christians have really polarized on this is one of those issues, uh, Scripture really calls us to say we're supposed to be united, hold it, hold your convictions, but don't you don't have to make them everybody else's convictions. You're 
to work together in unity no. and that, that kind of thing. And that's, that's one of the main points on debatable issues, like in Romans 14, one eating only vegetables, the other willing to eat meat. Uh, they differ, and the first thing he says, do not criticize the other one. They are God's servant. The one eats meats and meat and gives thanks to God. Don't criticize it. The other one gives up something they would like, and they give it up for God and their best understanding. And God, who asks of faith and obedience, says both of them are doing that. And that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. That's why he says, think it through, be convinced in your own mind, and then believe Worship and obey God according to your best understanding. And part of what happens when you're willing to obey, it causes you to go back to make sure you understood it correctly because you don't want to be doing something really hard the Bible didn't ask you to do. And you'll, it'll get you back to say, I've got to be sure that's what it's saying because I am ready to believe and follow Christ and push into this. Okay. So, Scripture can be reliable. Let's go to Genesis 2. Because in Genesis 2, it feels like we have an entirely different creation account. We go from day one, day two, day three, day four, to, to this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and it's all about Adam. Uh, it's about the ground, and it's about uh, the garden, and the rivers, and the tree of life, and taking man and putting him in the garden, and he's supposed to take care of it and name animals, and then he realizes, man, I don't look like any of these animals, and so he goes, oh, good, I'm going to make you a wife, and, uh, right, and it's not good for them to be alone, and, and they're just naked vegetarians at that point. <laughs> That's how it ends. No kidding, Which, there it is. Right. Yeah, verse 25. Which is hard to believe that before the fall you couldn't have meat. I mean, that's a bummer. Right? But that's not our point today. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, Genesis 2, okay. Genesis 2, now, all right. It, it really does, and there is the possibility that Moses drew upon uh, two sources, and uh, God led him to take those two sources that both were needed for the story, because there there is a sense. What do you mean sources? Um, it could have been oral sources. Uh, it could have been written. For instance, Luke, when he's writing the Gospels, he talks about interviewing people. And he also talks about looking at the manuscripts. And as he is putting it together, we don't have any problem that God who is behind the process is using the human elements. Uh, We haven't mentioned it before, but uh, uh, one way of looking at Scripture and genre that we talked about before is to view Scripture similarly to we view the nature of Christ. Now, that's a mystery when you say fully God and fully man. Nobody's going to fully understand that. But I think that's the correct understanding. And if somebody says, you mean half and half? No. You mean a mixture between the two? No. Fully God and fully man. When we come to Scripture, I think we have a right to say it is God-breathed, 2 Timothy And as a result, it is 100% from God. We also, at the same moment, say it is a fully human document with the vocabulary, the mind structure of the authors. And sometimes scripture will quote Isaiah and it will say, Isaiah said. Other times it will quote Isaiah and say, 
God said. And you read, whoa. And he means both. So having both of those together um, is needed. So to use different sources wouldn't be a problem. If God is guiding the process, these were two sources that were needed, if that's the case. So there's one source that refers to God as Elohim, and then Genesis another one source. uses a different name for God. Okay. And then what happens in Genesis 2? And some have said the reason this second story has a different name for God, Yahweh, is because it was written by two different people hundreds of years apart who had different views and they conflict. And you can understand how someone would come to that. Uh, the other possibility is with the names of God, when you're talking God is creator of all, it's very natural to use the appropriate name Elohim, like all the nations did. Elohim did this. But the Israelites had a name that only they used. No other nation used it. Our best guess at how it sounded was Yahweh. And in chapter 2, when God is showing his relationship to man and woman, and giving them a task and speaking to them, when it switches to include the name Yahweh, it seems very appropriate. We read Psalms 119 today. But in Psalms 19, you remember that heavens declare the glory of God and it goes for six verses, Elohim, Elohim, Elohim every time. And it's beautiful poetry. You hit verse 7, and he starts talking about God speaking to us through his word. And it switches to Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And to me, you could say, oh, that must have been two different authors. But you also could say, you might have a good poet here who changes the names of God to emphasize his world is something. But when he speaks to you personally and reveals himself, it's Yahweh. It's the personal covenant God. And we have that difference. Hmm. So, so in chapter 1, so God created, God created, God said, that's Elohim. Elohim. And then the Lord God made the heavens, that's Yahweh. It's got Lord both. God. Okay. It's got both. And, but the introduction of Yahweh, most of our translations will put it Lord in capitals. And that... That's not a bad way to translate it because when Yahweh's translated into the New Testament, it uses the word Lord, kurios. So that, I think translators, okay. that's a good move on their part. But usually in the front of the Bible, they'll say when it's all capitals, the word behind it is Yahweh, the covenant name for God. Okay. And so here, now we have Yahweh, and Yahweh's creating in a very different, more intimate story. Yeah, it's almost as if we got the wide span of the camera in chapter 1, and then God says, now, I want to zero in what is most important, and that's you and me and you with each other in community. And so the camera zooms in so we don't miss it and shows God giving a task, making them, and relating to them. So I, I think it's... The two stories, in a sense, help us to catch the whole flavor of what is happening. So they're not in contradiction. They are more of a big story. I think they're not in contradiction. And some would say since chapter 1 is more poetry, you don't have to worry about the order. 
so don't worry about possible differences. But on the other hand, commentators who've said, no, the timing will work between the two, have given pretty good explanations. Even one of the old commentaries, Kyle and Dalich, uh, was the first one I looked at and gave reasonable ways the two could fit together, even time-wise, if mm. needed. Okay, so one more problem. What, if we take science, then we have a fossil record, right? And Genesis 1 through 3 tells us that there isn't death until after the fall. And so we have fossils that clearly have died, and how do you, as sort of a, a shorter 24-hour day guy, reconcile that? Or, or how would you deal yeah. with that? And actually, Christians on this one have gone two ways, and they do make sense that if death entered in chapter 3 with sin, if that means all death, then you're not going to have fossils over a huge amount of time, depending on how you take the days. On the other hand, I notice the text never says there was not death. What it says is it has the tree of life and it says to the people, you will not die if you obey. And if you disobey, you will die. Romans says the same thing, the humans. I think there probably was death before then. And it's hard for me in vegetation to not picture pulling up a carrot, eating it, and then saying, is it dead? I'm going, I think so. I, th- I think something alive is now dead. So I, I think he was t- they were told they would die if they ate. They would not die if they obeyed. So that's spiritual death? Or? I think it, it's both. It ends up spiritual death that leads to okay. death for humans. And then we're connected with creation for sure um, in that we still have uh, death that's beyond what it should be. What about the view that says God put dinosaur bones in the dirt to frustrate scientists? Is that true? Is that true or false? (laughs) Never mind. Don't answer that one. I'm still thinking. Strike it from the record because I believe. (laughs) Okay. Lastly, um, so here we are we establish that that Scripture is reliable. Scripture can endure culture and scientific revolution, current science. Um, We establish that science isn't something to be afraid of. And and I would go past that and really say, if all truth is God's truth, then we can push into those questions, be great thinkers, great scientists that are followers of Jesus and not live in this fearful kind of place. Who are some people that you would say are they're doing great thinking? Yeah, we're very fortunate here with Western Seminary and Multnomah University. If you go to those sections of the library under creation and evolution, you're going to have more good books. I mean, really careful thinking of people that are taking the text seriously and are taking science seriously. And sometimes just the the big thing, scripture mm-hmm. versus science, sometimes the creation kind of thing. Uh, one of the books that I have up here that I think helps us in two ways, it's three views on creation and evolution. And one, it helps us to see the variety of ways that Christians have gone at it. Uh, 
but it uh, also uh, helps us to get some clear facts on both of them that there's a way to harmonize and they're trying to harmonize uh, both of those. So a book like this, even the introduction is like unbelievably helpful to find out how Christians have wrestled with this through the ages. And some of the things uh, that are available are written so that you can get your hands on it. Philip Johnson uh, revolutionized things in when he talked about design and he did it in a way that he got in secular universities and pretty soon they could not ignore him. So when he came to Portland State, I went and listened to the debate and he was kind. He was ready to have a beer with everybody after the, uh, after the discussion and often does some of the, he's made friends across the country, but he laid out some issues. And one of the ones that, that was helpful to everybody, he said, be real careful. You're not doing science plus philosophy because once you say the only causes can be natural causes, there's no experiment to prove that. What you've done is taken science, looking at all the facts, trying to come up with a hypothesis, trying to experiment, and you've added philosophy, a particular philosophy called naturalism. And it may be right, but he's saying you're doing two things there. Let your students know you're a naturalist and that's philosophy and you can't prove it scientifically and you're doing science. That was the most helpful thing for someone to say, wait a minute, Uh, I'm interested in doing the science in the big debate in the schools. The definition was a big part of the debate because once you say science is finding the natural causes you changed everything and you added a philosophy and you said this is the only philosophy you're allowed to have if you're a scientist. And usually scientists are good at science and bad at philosophy. <laughs> okay, so Scripture's reliable. <laughs> science isn't something to be afraid of. Push into it. There's lots of resources out there. And, and ultimately, that this is about worship, that Scripture reveals a God, tells us who he is, tells us who we are, makes that truth claim on us of purpose and meaning. So when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, what is it that we're supposed to walk away with about God? I think a couple of things, and one of them is the greatness of God that led people around the throne in Revelation to worship even then. At the end of time, it's still happening because you created, and by your will they existed, and, and you created them. So part of it is, Acting like your God is as big as he is. Uh, That's one of the reasons when uh, elders were wrestling with the building and where we would be, uh, that I felt free to pray for a free building. I got a big God. Why not pray for grace beyond what we deserve? By the way, I heard you were giving me a hard time about that. (laughs) Like a Sunday ago, I've got people, and they say the word on the street was... You were giving me a hard time. Consciously, some of the times when I prayed, it was with Jeremiah. Ah, Lord God, you've made the heavens and the earth by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Well, once you get done saying that, 
It's pretty easy to pray for something big. So I say the first thing is worship for who God is. Okay, what about us? Who's it tell us? What does it say about us, Genesis 1 and 2? I think another thing that it's going to say is that God made us for communion with each other and with him. That chapter 2 makes it perfectly clear that he is a God that we are related to. We are made like him. He is one who walks and talks, and like in chapter 2, and has revealed himself to us. So I think it leaves us with there is such a thing as a relationship with God, and he intends by the way he made us to make us in communion with each other. And isn't it amazing when, say, when you're doing a wedding and you're looking at it and it says uh, Adam is created, nothing's wrong yet, he has perfect fellowship with God, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. You go, what? He's got God, no sin, perfect creation. And at that point, it just screams to us, he made us for communion with him and with each other. A second thing that just says it strongly. Okay, so scripture, we can trust it. It's reliable. Uh, We interpret it in its forms, in its genres. Science isn't something to be afraid of. Don't don't be afraid of it. But we are to think, we're responsible for thinking about this, for agreeing to disagree on outcomes. And then ultimately, it's really about worship, that we would be a people that are faithful to the text, that worship our great God. So we're going to do that now as we come to communion. Would you pray for us as we head into that? Before I do, let me say to our artists who help us in communion that you are acting like you're made in the image of God when you write a new song that's never been written when you create music that's never had those notes together in that way, it is like God taking the elements and making something new. And when you do that, you're acting like you are imago Dei, made in the image of God. And it is a beautiful thing. Let's pray together. Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Lord, I do pray you would help us to think deeply about our culture and the world that you've made. I pray that you would cause us to think deeply about your scripture. And I pray that our heart will follow Christ who believed the Old Testament who believe the creator made them male and female. Help us to follow you and do what you've asked. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Gary, thank you for helping us get our minds around this. Would you stand with me as we prepare to come to this table today where the creator became the created, where his took on the flesh of humanity and allowed that body to be broken on the cross so that you and I could be drawn back to that original vision of Genesis 1 and 2, that we could be with God in communion forever. We 
pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.